the Brexit Breakdown Podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Brexit Breakdown Podcast. I'm James Miller, journalist, author, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit and also man who is sweltering in the current heat and battling to record this against the background of the dustbin lorry going by. But, you know, I can't shut the windows, I just melt. In an effort to find out more about Brexit on this episode, I was joined by Jonathan Portis, Professor of Economics and Public Policy at King's College London and uh, UK and Changing Europe chap. And I was joined by the Australian High Commissioner to the UK, George Brandis. Uh, me and Jonathan went along to the Aussie Embassy, uh, also known as Gringotts, I discovered. It's apparently where they film uh, Harry Potter, in the, well, that's the bank in Harry Potter, isn't it? Really interesting chat, really interesting to hear um, what people think of Brexit from abroad. Also on this episode, I bring you again Alan and Matt's big box of facts. Yeah, I'm going to make you listen all the way to the end of this episode to find out the answer to this amazing piece of Brexit trivia brought to you by uh, Matt Bevington and Alan Wager. The, um, they're like the UK and changing Europe elves. Like QI have elves, don't they? They're always going about their elves, the people who actually do all the work. Um, they are the UK and changing Europe elves. And their quiz question is, rank these four countries in terms of how many of that country's nationals are in the UK. So how many Filipinos are in the UK, how many Dutch people, how many Romanians, and how many Australians? How do they rank one to four, those four countries? Uh, I will pop up again at the end of the episode to tell you the answer to that. In the meantime, here's a chat with George Brandis. We started talking about the links between Australia and the UK. Here we go. job uh, almost the second sentence in any conversation I have with uh, somebody I meet is they will say to me oh I've got a son who's working in Sydney or my daughter married a guy from Perth or, or the, the number of people from Britain who have family in Australia um, is remarkable according to one estimate there are more British people living in Australia than there are British people living in continental Europe so there are strong people-to-people -people links. Uh, there are natural cultural affinities and his historical shared experience, including in wartime. We have a common uh, outlook on the world as uh, liberal democracies who are committed to uh, defending the rules-based international order. Um, and uh, we have somewhat similar societies. So there is really no particularly obvious dimension in which the interests of the United Kingdom and Australia don't align. Um, we are partners through the Five Eyes uh, intelligence community. Uh, um, militaries have a, a great deal to do with each other in um, regular uh, exercises, and that's been the case for many, many years. Coming to Brexit, both the UK government and the Australian government are committed to negotiating a free trade agreement when Brexit occurs. Under the Lisbon Treaty, that negotiation can't begin until after 
the United Kingdom um, formally withdraws, although there's been a lot of preliminary discussion mm. about it. Um, there have been six meetings of a, of a joint working group established two years ago by the two governments. We think that there are um, opportunities for um, a greater degree of uh, trade and commerce between the United Kingdom and Australia when the United Kingdom is free of uh, the constraints of uh, the European Union. Um, the United Kingdom is Australia's seventh largest trading partner, which see at the moment, which seems odd given the, um, all of the considerations that I've just mentioned. We think that there can be uh, a, a, an even greater volume of trade between our two countries, both in goods and services. Are you suggesting that the UK being in the EU has been some sort of constraint on trade between Australia and the UK? Well, the United Kingdom has obviously um, not had its own trade policy. It's been bound by the EU's trade policy, I think, from Australia's point of view, uh, and without making any political judgments about the desirability or, or otherwise of Brexit. Um, the, uh, the United Kingdom's ability to prosecute an independent trade policy um, will, from the point of view of a country like Australia, um, create opportunities. What are those opportunities? I mean, you know, in, in, in concrete terms, are mainly we talking about lamb mainly or, well, uh, you know, that's terrible. I've got straight to some very cheap uh, stereotypes. Is it Foster's and, and sheep? But, yeah, you know, no, Foster's no, isn't even no, made in Australia, is it? No, it, <laughs> it, it, it's high-end services. Okay. You know, professional services, um, financial services, um, uh, uh, universities, uh, and, and uh, the relationship between academic institutions. Um, uh, the, that is where... Um, we see a greater opportunity for uh, growth, like, for example, mutual recognition of professional qualifications is, is an obvious one. Um, I know these, this, um, the agricultural um, aspects of the free trade agreement always gets thrown up, but it's a bit of a, um, pardon the slight pun, a bit of a red herring, because uh, the, 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 the demand for Australian meat from our near north, from Indonesia, from China, from Japan, Korea, um, at the moment, uh, exceeds our capacity to supply those markets. So the idea that the, the UK market, um, in the event of an FTA, is going to be swamped by Australian lamb or beef or, or pork or, 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 or um, those kind of, of agricultural goods um, is really uh, an alarmist and erroneous apprehension. Is that, Jonathan, is that true of the Brexit debate more widely? in that we talk about stuff, we're always talking about stuff, you know, cars and sheep from New Zealand or Australia or whatever, um, but actually we're a service economy and services are actually far more important, but nobody really, you can't really understand what a service is when you're sort of selling it abroad, it doesn't make, it's not quite as easy to, to um, get your head around. There's a lot of truth in that, of course, although we are a service economy, um, even in the UK, which trades more in services as a proportion of trade than almost any other economy, are um, a majority of our exports and imports still are goods, not services. Um, but I do uh, agree with the High Commissioner that, that you know, over the medium to long term, the most of the prospects for, uh, for increased trade are going to come in the service sector, um, and especially in things like, uh, uh, like professional services and finance. Um, 
the I mean, you know, the fact is, of course, the you know, the UK's main trading partner for those will still be the EU to some extent. The US, um, Australia is a is still a very very long way away. Yeah. Um, and and the idea that one thing that we have uh, uh, I think become aware of the last few years, the idea that distance doesn't matter or matters less in services does not appear to be borne out by the facts. Distance still matters a lot. So you know, we have to be realistic. Oh. There are opportunities to, uh, to expand trade with Australia in services, but it's not going to be a big part of the, uh, of the UK's uh, trade growth post-Brexit. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting you say, because, you know, yes, you think, oh, services, doesn't matter that Australia's a long way away. But, of course, if they're asleep and we're awake, then that doesn't There's time difference is the work. fact that services trade is still very dependent on people moving. See, right. Um, and people, people travelling. Okay. Um, see, when you're growing up in Australia, when you're digging a hole, do people say to you, you're going to come out in Britain? I mean, I know this is a slight, slight, slight uh, uh, sidetrack. Just thinking about you know the fact that Australia is so far away. You know, when you're uh, doing a hole in, in Britain, people, your parents would say to you, "If you dig far enough, you'll come out in Australia." I, I, th- mm. I think. Where do you come out if you dig a hole in Australia? I think that uh, well, you probably strike valuable minerals. Before you. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, uh, I, I slightly disagree with Jonathan, mm. about, uh, uh, but only only. In, it's really a nuance. I think Australians have a different perception of distance from people in the United Kingdom um, because we are so far away from Europe, from mm. the United Kingdom, from, uh, from the East Coast, at least, of, of the United States. Um, Australians are... A cu- and, and we're a very big country, too, so Australians are accustomed to travelling long distances... Yeah. And we think nothing of it. Um, it's no longer the case that um, uh, London is the, the, the most obvious destination for young Australians, but it's still, the, I think, the second destination of, of second choice for young Australians. Where's the first? Um, probably Bali. Um, uh-huh. but, uh, in, in sort of, but that's a resort. So, mm. but, it, but there are still vast, vast squads of young Australians who come to London as... Mm. Part of a, almost a, a rite of passage, and you only have to walk around the streets of London to, to see that. The um, so for us, for we Australians, we don't think the United Kingdom is all that far away, mm. because we know that we, um, in our part of the world, um, we're close to Asia, but but relatively far from from Europe and from you know, the, the, the North Atlantic nations. But we are so accustomed to long travelling long distances that it is not a psychological or practical barrier barrier for us, and, the, and therefore the, the kind of perception that the United Kingdom is a long way away doesn't really count for very much in most that, people's thinking. That, that's interesting. I mean, how long do you think that? Well, this is less about Brexit and more about Australia. <laughs> but how long do you think that will survive? I mean, from of course there are these very clear sort of cultural affinities and so on, and that is not going to change. But the fact is that, that you know, economically, China is far, far more important to Australia than oh, the UK true. is. And that, and, that, and that won't change. And that won't change. No. In, India will probably become more important, again, because you will have increasing trade as well as cultural and people links with, with other bits of Asia, like India, you have a growing Indian population and so on. Um, so in 10 or 20 years, I mean, I, I, I 
in over 10 or 20 years, those cultural affinities and, and personal links between the UK and Australia will not go away. But we're just, the, the weight of, 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 of economics will surely mean that we will be less important, you know, we will weigh less in your consciousness, particularly in, in, your, uh, um, in how you think about your place in the world economically. Well, there's no doubt that over the course of my lifetime, um, the relationship with Asia and the countries to Australia's north um, has become the most important mercantile relation or trading relationship Australia has. No doubt at all about that. But it goes back to 1958 when a trade treaty with Japan was um, entered into by the Menzies government and that um, was accelerated after Britain joined the, uh, yeah, what was yeah. then the EEC in the 1970s. That being said, we're an English-speaking uh, democracy. Uh, well, we do have the affinities that I spoke of before. Um, London is one of the great destinations in the world. Um, there is a, uh, there is a, I, I believe that the United Kingdom and, and London in particular will, will, for as far as I can foresee, continue to have quite a large place in the Australian consciousness of desirable and important places abroad. I mean, you say that's not about Brexit. That's exactly about Brexit, isn't it, Jonathan? It's that question of what's more important, economics or identity, you know? And presumably for Australia, the economic sort of point to Asia broadly, but the identity, you know, I, I don't know, maybe you'll disagree with me, but I'd suggest the Australian identity is still very much angled towards... Uh, well, the Queen's still the head of state, so inevitably the, the, the identity is, is angled towards England, if not Europe. Well, I UK, think the Australian identity is uh, Australian. I mean, Australia has a unique identity. It's a very successful multicultural society. Um, it's, um, the, the degree of social cohesion in Australia um, uh, it is remarkably high. Mm. Uh, the, um, that's partly a, a product of prosperity. It's the wealthiest countries tend to have, for obvious reasons, uh, a, a, a greater opportunities for social cohesion. It's partly because of advertent policies by Australian governments on both sides of politics over many years to create a multicultural society. Um, so Australia doesn't identify as anything other than an Australian nation, but um, nevertheless there are the affinities uh, and commonalities that I spoke of as, as well, which means that the United Kingdom will um, always be have a large place in our uh, in in our sense of um, nations with to whom we feel close. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously the Queen is the head of state. Uh, if you had to rank, I, you're a diplomat, I know you're not going to answer this, but I'll try anyway. Uh, if you had to rank, you know, uh, Australian identity, would it be, does the Commonwealth automatically trump everything else just because the Queen's the head of state? You know, if you said to an Australian, I don't know, you, you know, are you part of Australasia or Asia or the Commonwealth? Which one I think, comes uh, out top? I think definitely Australians would say, well, we're part of Australia. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, there, there is there is a, 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 a I suppose the, the the Australian identity. There's a greater awareness of the complexity mm. uh, and the variety mm. of the Australian identity in 
more recent years. I mean, when I was born, I was born in 1957, um, the official policy of both sides of politics in until uh, the late 1960s was what was called the White Australia policy. We only accepted um, settlers from basically from um, from the United K- Kingdom and, and Europe um, mm. and New Zealand, of course. Um, in the last 50 years, that has changed um, massively. We now uh, we have since the late 1960s run a strictly non-discriminatory immigration policy. Uh, we accept more refugees per capita than any nation in the world. Um, we um, are more aware of the richness and importance of the indigenous, the the the, the, uh, the, the indigenous people in our history, the, the oldest continuing culture the world has known, according to some um, scientists and anthropologists, a culture that can be traced back sixty thousand years. So we are we are a, a nation which um, has an indigenous um, uh, history, uh, a history of a European history after white settlement in 1788, and in the last 50 years, um, a, 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 a cultural variety um, based on accepting and welcoming settlers from every nation in the world. Okay, right, well, let's go there, because you, you've raised immigration there, basically. Um, heaven knows in this country we hear a lot about an Australian-style point system of immigration. Yeah. Uh, well, I just, Jonathan... You, obviously, you've done a lot on immigration. How many people in the UK actually under, understand what an Australian points-style immigration system is? Hardly any. Right. Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I, I remember uh, when I was uh, um, when I was doing immigration policy in government, mm. uh, um, and we first uh, the then Labour government decided it wanted to introduce an Australian-style point system, uh, and I uh, a special I uh, and and. I was talking to a special advisor colleague of mine, a political appointee, who said, and, and I said, come on, you do realise that this is nothing like the Australian system at all. It really has, uh, um, uh, it's just our current system rebadged with Australian-style <laughs> point system slapped on the top, but you actually you haven't really changed very much. And he says, yeah, of course I know that. I'm not stupid. Um, <laughs> Welcome but to the, politics. But the focus, the focus groups love it. Um, the focus groups right. love the idea of an Australian-style point system, partly because they have no idea what it means. <laughs> um, uh, and the, 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 the way I put it is that, look, if, you're, if you don't have freedom of movement, if you're outside the EU um, and you don't have freedom of movement and you're not either going to have completely open borders or completely closed borders, which we're not because no country is, then you're going to have a set of criteria that determines who comes, who's allowed to come in mm. for work purposes and who's not. Um, and if you want to call that an Australian style point system, you can. But actually, um, every country that not that doesn't have freedom of movement has that sort of system. Uh, so that one way of what so one way of describing Australian style point system that's usually what it means in the British context is just a system that has a bunch of criteria, like any system. The other way is to say, well, actually, we really want to do something like the Australians do, but actually, that's not going to happen because it's not the Australian system works. I would say you will have your own views um, or, or position, but the Australian system works pretty well for Australia. It's not a system which we would 
want to import directly in the U- for the UK because it's not it's designed by the Australians for the Australians. Well, the, the, that's true. I mean, the, 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 hang, the, hang, right, the hang, just before we go any further, we need a definition. Okay, well, that's what I'm about to give you. Right. Okay. So the Australian Migration Program, uh, there are several streams. Um, the most important stream is family reunion. Um, another important stream is the Refugee and Humanitarian Resettlement Program, which uh, in the current year uh, will resettle um, 18,750 people. It's the current quota. But there is also a component of our migration program called the Skilled Migration Program, um, which is, um, in most instances, points tested. So the points test favours applicants who hold higher degrees, who are between the ages of 25 and 32, have a high level of English language skills, and have an established period of work experience in their field. Because what we want to bring to Australia under the Skilled Migration Program are people with skills who are also young people. If there's, you know, for, for an argument's sake, you know, you, you say, okay, every year we're going to let in 100,000 people and 80,000 of them are going to come from, are going to get the 50-point people who've got, who are young and got skills and 5,000 are going to have fewer points. Is that how it works or is, the is it purely the people with the most points get in? Well, with, with, I, I pains to emphasise that this is only a component of the overall okay. migration yeah, right. programme. The biggest component is the family reunion programme, which is not skills tested. But um, if you want to settle in Australia... Um, uh, then it's a legitimate expectation that um, that uh, leaving aside family reunion, leaving aside humanitarian okay. entrance, that you will bring something to the country uh, that the country needs and, and wants. And uh, those well, those are skills uh, that help build our economy. I mean, the Australian economy has been built on the strength of migrants. So the that the economic growth, I'm sorry, the population growth component of Australia um, depends um, very heavily on expanding our population through bringing uh, uh, new people in uh, and uh, the skills um, uh, the skills component of the migration program is in turn a very important element of that. Australia is still, don't forget, a relatively small nation in population terms. The population of Australia passed 25 million last year. Um, so, and Australia, the Australian land mass is uh, roughly the size of continental Europe. Yeah. So, and we've got a long way to go in terms of you know, building our population, and that's part of the Australian story, is building the population. Uh, there's uh, the, 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 nat- the rate of natural increase is not enough. So, um, in, in every generation, we have uh, welcomed um, uh, tens and hundreds of thousands of people every year uh, as migrants. And, this, and I think this is why the, the UK situation is quite different. Uh, um, so the Australian system is what we uh, immigration people tend to call a human capital-based system. Um, that's to say it looks at people's characteristics. Do they have a deg- Are they young? Do they speak English? Do they have a degree, experience in certain things? Um, and says, right, well, those are the sort of people we want in the country. Uh, 
you know, we want to increase the population, we want to fill the population, we are going to select on these criteria because we think these criteria mean that people will make a long-term contribution. Mm. Um, the UK... Uh, Isn't that the sort of people we want in the UK as well? Well, the, it is, but there's different ways of doing it. Um, we tend to have a more... Um, uh, have always tended to have a more labour market-based approach, which is to say, actually, we're going to decide who, who gets allowed to come here mostly on the basis of whether they get a job offer, uh, whether they, whether they right. actually, there is an employer who wants to hire them to do a particular job that, again, passes a set of criteria, you often with a skill and salary threshold. But it's a much more short-term thing. The Australians are looking for people who they think will contribute over 10, 20, 30, 40 years because they're permanent settlers. We tend to say, take a, a somewhat more market-based approach, which is to say, well, look, there's an employer who wants to hire you for a job that's of a certain skill level, a certain threshold, fine. And then if you're still here after five or 10 years and gainfully employed, then maybe we'll let you stay. But since we don't have an objective of using the migration system to increase the population, and there isn't that same presumption that the Australian has that people will basically be automatically offered permanent settlement if they qualify under this program, um, and that you know, there, there there are blurred lines here. There isn't a right way of doing it. But typically, uh, the UK has has been on the more market labour market based approach and Australia has been on the more human capital based approach and I think that just reflects our different historical and economic context and my guess is that no matter what politicians here say about an Australian points based system we're not going to move to a, a position where we say actually we want to grow, use immigration to grow the population long term and we're going to select people on the grounds of, of age and, and degrees to do that as opposed to saying we're still going to basically look at the employer test whether employers really want someone mm. as a way of determining who gets to, to get a work visa. By, by the way, there is also within the Australian yes. system um, uh, uh, a provision for um, for temporary uh, work visas for lower skill, that, which is, yeah. that's nothing to do with the, the skilled yeah. uh, migration program, so that the, the, the lower level jobs um, can, uh, and, and labour market shortages are often filled by people who come in on temporary work visas. Um, but I think the broad point you make is absolutely right, and that's the perspective from which to, to compare the two countries. Australia is and will continue to be in the business of building our population. Um, we're a very big land um, with a relatively small population. Um, the, um, the United Kingdom is a small, rather crowded island and you're not in the business of building your population up um, uh, as, a, as a significant goal of national policy. Hi, Arnand here. Sorry to butt in, but I just wanted to say, if you like this podcast, which I'm sure you do, then please rate it wherever you get your podcasts from. You'll be doing a public service because it makes it easier for others to find us. While you're at it, go to our website, www.ukandeu.ac.uk and sign up for our fantastic newsletter. Not only the latest on Brexit, but the latest on the best football team in the world. Every two weeks, free, in your inbox. Do it now. Every Australian, other than Indigenous people whose forebears have lived in the, uh, on the landmass for tens of thousands of years, but other than Indigenous people, every Australian can think of the family story of when 
their forebears arrived. Either they arrived themselves, or their parents arrived, or their grandparents arrived. In my own family, um, my great-great-grandparents arrived in the 1860s. Mm. But one of the big differences, and I think it affects the psychology of the two countries a bit, Australia has a sense of recency, mm. of, 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 a, of a new nation being created by the ambition of its leaders and the spirit of its people. Of the, the United Kingdom is, a, in my view, a wonderful nation. What it doesn't have, though, is a sense of recency. In fact, it has the opposite. It has a sense, <laughs> yes. a deep, deep, deep sense of history stretching back beyond um, beyond the, the the memory of, of, of the, the current generation. Um, yeah. Just talking about the, the national psyche, uh, mm. if we want to go down that route. But you know, um, when Brexit happened, I mean, what was the sort of Australian? I mean, I appreciate people have different reactions, mm. but you know, was there a sort of overall mood? Because you know, we hear that the Australians were slightly put out when the UK went. Actually, we're going to throw a lot in with Europe in the seventies. Was there a yay? They've come back to us. Was there a what the hell are they doing? Uh, or was there brilliant? Let's go and sell them some services, not mm. not. Beer and cheap services. Well, I think, as we were saying earlier in the conversation, most of Australia's trade is with Asia, and that will always be the case. So um, I I think when Brexit happened, it was a story in the international news pages. I mean, in in this country, nobody can talk about anything but Brexit. It's it's, it's completely all-consuming. But in Australia, it is an event happening... In a, in a friendly foreign nation on the other side of the world, which may have some implications, but it was never a sort of a page one story, as it were. The Australian public, to the extent to which they take an interest, would have the view, well, let the British sort it out. Uh, I mean, that's interesting in itself. You know, that's the value of having foreign journalists and high commissioners and ambassadors on this podcast, because they just go, well, the rest of the world isn't as bothered. You're making podcasts about it and completely obsessed. Sorry, one other point you made, James, which I should address is, you know, did, did Australia feel you know, mm, in yeah. the 1970s? Well, I was a teenager in the 1970s, so I vaguely remember it, But um, and now I'm in my 60s. So, you know, you'd have to be of my parents' generation to feel... Um, um, uh, 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 any sort of deep, se- deep sense of uh, of the Britain turning its back on Australia and, for that matter, New Zealand in the nineteen seventies, because it's just so long ago. Mm. Um, so it is not. It's interesting to me that is often on the minds of people I talk to from the United Kingdom, and they will say, in a, sometimes in a slightly um, apologetic and, and, and embarrassed way, "Oh, you know." So sorry we did the the wrong thing by you in the 1970s, and my attitude is to say to them, well, look, let's just think about the future. I mean, it's, well, it, it's 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 not a burden most Australians. It's been carry. a disaster for Australia since the 70s, isn't it? You know, it's all been going wrong since then. You mean, you know, you're going to get get back in the game now? Well, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, forgive me for for <laughs> getting on the record our boast that we um, are in the middle of our 28th consecutive year of economic growth. While we're talking about Australian politics, I'm going to take the opportunity to plug my other podcast, also produced from the uh, Policy Institute, which is a podcast of one's own with Julia Gillard, Hmm. uh, which I produce rather than appear on. But um, go and listen to it. And let me just ask you the question that my daughter asked me to ask Julia, but I haven't yet. Have you ever seen a kangaroo? 
Of course. In the unlikely event, this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently. Let's finish up with a feature, um, a recommendation. We've got an ever-growing list of things to understand. Brexit. Uh, let's go to the High Commissioner first. If I asked you, how do I understand Brexit, where would you point me? Well, I would look through the, the, all the, the white noise and excitability in the media. I would take a long-term historical view. Um, that's uh, uh, that's uh, the way I, I think is best to understand this, not to react to you know every latest headline or every manoeuvre either in Whitehall or in Brussels, but to think about the United Kingdom's history, um, which has always been, you know, as Britain has succeeded as a trading nation, this is a nation historically built on the spirit of merchant adventurers. And, and I, I hope for the sake of the United Kingdom that that, that boldness and, and, and venturesome spirit and optimism and willingness to embrace the opportunities of trade becomes the prevailing psyche of this nation in the years to come because it certainly has been um, uh, over Britain's long history um, uh, hugely successful. Is there any, like when you were appointed, did you either by choice or, or by order get some sort of potted history of British, mm-hmm. of Britain, well, you know, is there some, well, or did you just go and hang around the well, British Museum for an I've, afternoon or I've, I've been a student of British history, particularly British political history all my life and one thing I actually did is I reread a book that I'd first read many years ago, uh, Trevelyan's History of England. Now, that's a book that was first published nearly 100 years ago, but it's a great classic um, uh, expression of the Whig view of history, the optimistic view that Britain is a, a country um, in which mm-hmm. um, uh, geared to reform, geared to uh, democratisation, uh, geared to freedom of commerce. Jonathan, what have you got for the list? Okay. Um, well, I think uh, uh, I agree with that entirely, but uh, that, uh, but uh, for a sort of more, yeah, you can't recommend the same thing. I've never, no, that's okay. never happened I, before. No, I, I, I agree with that, in sort of that, that that one should look at this in the historical perspective. But I think to you know, I'm allowed to be more negative than the investor, which has to be polite. <laughs> but I would recommend uh, Chris Cook's book, um, "Defeated by Brexit: Forgetting Our History," uh, as a uh, just just published um, by Chris Cook, formerly of, of the Financial Times yeah, and, and Newsnight, um, about uh, the progress of the negotiations over the past two two three years and how you know uh, the this current government has just how I mean Brexit was always going to be hard, difficult, and complicated, but just the the w- comprehensive mismanagement. Not just of the Brexit negotiations, but of sort of the trashing of our relation of our well-deserved reputation for pragmatism, competence, uh, the a good the good relationship between objective and professional civil servants and, and ministers, um, which has you know I think mostly been uh, 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 the hallmark of. British government over the past twenty to thirty years, and and you know, uh, uh, and there is a lot, a lot has gone wrong. There is a lot of blame to go around, but but certainly David Cameron and, and Theresa May have done more to uh, um, to destroy the reputation of the UK for that sort of political administrative uh, competence than than in in my lifetime. Okay, um, and, and that, except for an ex civil servant like me, that is. 
deeply depressing. I'm well, I'm, I'm the optimist here, obviously. <laughs> well, I come from an, a, a nation of sunny optimism, but yes. uh, you know, well, look, look, look beyond that to, to years ahead, because I mean, without commenting or necessarily yeah. adopting what you've said, but I understand the point you're making, of course. Think back to 1956 and how things looked um, at the time of Suez, when you know the, the, the Eisenhower administration actually orchestrated a run on the pound. Um, you know there have been times since the Second World War in which Britain's reputation uh, has seemed uh, to, to uh, be uh, less um, uh, less than it, it would hope that it was, and Britain has recovered from that always. There you go. There's a cheery note to end on for the summer. We're going to take a little break from the podcast now. But uh, George Brandis says, don't worry, be happy. Essentially, I mean, he didn't say exactly that, did he? But basically he said, Britain will be all right. Um, and let's hope he is correct. I'm recording this just as the uh, Tory leadership election reaches its climax. And by the time you're listening to this, we'll have a new prime minister. So, that's exciting, but it'll all be okay, says George. And to be honest, the sun's shining. The Australian attitude seems quite sensible in these times. You know, uh, just go to the beach, enjoy the sunshine, that sort of idea. And here's the answer to Alan and Matt's big box of facts. Proving interview. So, I gave you four nations. I said, which has got the most people in the UK, which has got the fewest in the UK. Here's the, here's the league table. In fourth, it's the Netherlands. There's 81,000 Dutch people in the UK. In third place, it's Australia. Feels like there's a lot of Australians in the UK, but only 140,000. Topped by the Filipinos in second place, 141,000. I don't know if they counted them all exactly, that seems very precise. Um, and the Romanians win. There's 392,000 Romanians in the UK, apparently. Um, so it goes Romania, uh, the Philippines, Australia, Holland, because those four fairly random nations picked by Matt Bevington and Alan Wager from their big bag of facts. There's a box of facts, can't remember. If you have some Brexit facts you want to share, or if you want to take part in the long-running competition to rewrite the lyrics to 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover in a Brexit style uh, I've got a couple of lyrics now, need to try and get a few more and we begin to stitch them together into a whole song. Uh, get in touch. Get in touch with the UK and Changing Europe via Facebook or via their website, which is ukandeu.ac.uk or via their Twitter, which is UK and EU or at UK and EU, I should say. Um, or feel free to get in touch with me. I'm on Twitter at Political Yeti. My website is james-miller.com. Um, and yeah, come back not in a couple of weeks. Come back uh, at the end of next month, maybe the start of September, for another episode. We're going to take a little break because, frankly, we've all got better things to do over the summer. Unless, who knows, maybe there'll be some sort of uh, political emergency that will call us all back and we might have to do some sort of emergency podcast. But hopefully not. Hopefully it'll be a calm summer and we'll be back in September. The music, as ever, has been Requiem for a Fish by the Freak Fandango Orchestra. This has been the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK and a changing Europe, supported by King's College London and supported and funded by the Economic and Social Research Council. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.